0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about David Martin, the gun-loving, sticky-fingered, cross-dressing transgender burglar whose bungled arrest led to one of the Metropolitan Police's worst miscarriages of justice. Murder Mile contains graphic descriptions of violence, which may upset those who are easily offended, as well as realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, You'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 17, David Martin and the baffling case of the transgender Houdini. Today, I'm on Great Marlborough Street in Soho, W1 a mid-sized road which runs parallel with Big Street where the mad shoemaker and wannabe cock chopper William Stolzer was arrested Broadwick Street where big-hearted Ginger Ray was brutally murdered and it intersects with Carnaby Street where the mysterious Margaret Cook was gunned down often called Marlborough Street, owing to a clerical error made on the original Monopoly board, a mistake which remains today. Great Marlborough Street was named after John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough. And although Great Marlborough Street was the former home of evolutionist Charles Darwin, the current home of the mock Tudor splendour of the Liberty's store, and the inspiration for Marlborough cigarettes, as it's here where in 1881, tobacco baron Philip Morris opened his first cigarette factory. It really is a street which doesn't warrant the prefix of great, as today it's little more than a coffee shop filled cut through for honking taxi drivers and impatient delivery trucks. But for fans of true crime, this street has one redeeming feature. As 19 to 21 Great Marlborough Street was once the home of the Marlborough Street Police Station and Magistrates Court. Where Oscar Wilde's infamous libel trial was held. Where the Rolling Stones stood trial for drug and firearms offences. Where John Lennon and Yoko Ono were tried for obscenity. Where Richard Rhodes Henley, the randy Canadian sailor with a deadly wanking fixation, was arrested. And it was here, in 1982, that a baffling chain of events, which led to the near execution of an innocent man, all began with the arrest of a transgender burglar called David Martin. A word of warning before we proceed any further. As insane, deranged, and batshit crazy as the details in this episode may seem, although this story reads like a trashy tabloid journalist has eaten his own sleazy newspaper and shat out onto the page a runny bum lump of words, it's entirely real, totally true, and very unpredictable. So strap yourselves in, folks, as we're in for a bumpy ride. The childhood of David Ralph Martin was truly unremarkable. He was an only child to a doting mother and a hard-working father, raised in a lower-middle-class house in the shadow of post-war London. And although rationing was still in force, he didn't starve, he wasn't beaten, and he wasn't broke. Being an incredibly bright, driven, and talented child, who could truly turn his hand to anything... David should have excelled at school, but as an easily bored child who was often distracted, dissatisfied and desperate for toys, love and attention, David's overriding traits were greed, frustration and impatience, and it would drive him into a life of crime. Aged just 14, David stole a car. Not that he needed a car, Not that he wanted a car, but because it was there, and he felt it belonged to him. And yet being arrested didn't bother him, nor was it the brief stint in Borstal which lit a fire under David's arse, but that with the police having returned the car to its rightful owner, David felt a great hatred towards the police, which would remain to the bitter end, as in his eyes, They had stolen what he felt was his. During his teenage years, having progressed up the criminal ladder to burglary, David applied his sharp brain, dexterous hands and photographic memory to a new set of skills. And just as training as a motor mechanic had made him a swifter car thief, Having learned to bypass any building's alarm system and developed an encyclopedic knowledge of door locks, this made him into a master burglar, who only needed the briefest of looks at a key to memorize the shape of the barrel and to fashion himself a lock pick using whatever object came to hand. Before his 26th birthday, David Martin had been arrested and convicted on more than 50 counts of theft, burglary, and fraud, resulting in minor custodial sentences in Borstal, young offenders' institutions, and later, adult prison, until 1973, when David was convicted of the greater charge of check fraud, and was sentenced to nine years in Brixton prison. Having grown up under the strict rules of a domineering father, and being so driven Free-spirited and independent, with a deep-seated hatred for authority, prison life should have been hell for David as a closet bisexual who, although he enjoyed being a man, he always felt that his long legs, petite frame and feminine features were best suited to women's clothes. And by wearing a dress, high heels and stockings, they always made him feel more comfortable. Although initially self-conscious, inside prison, David slowly became the man he wanted to be, and as a transgender bisexual, whose feminine look bridged the gap for sex-starved heterosexual convicts, it was here that he fully explored the homosexual side of his bisexuality, later entering a loving relationship with Britain's most notorious serial killer Dennis Nilsen and letting his cross-dressing very much become not only part of his life and his identity, but also his criminal career. Prison had reinforced David's self-confidence, and upon his release in 1981, David Martin ditched his jeans, jacket, t-shirt and trainers, and, feeling a need to always look fabulous, even whilst committing a crime, he'd often dress in the leather skirt, halter top, stockings, suspenders, and designer slingbacks, with his hair dyed, his nails painted, and his makeup done. And like a feisty femme fatale in a 1940s pulp novel, he was always packing a loaded revolver in his handbag, which was not only part of his identity, it was also his disguise. David's dual identity was an invaluable part of his criminal career. As initially, he'd case a building dressed in a blouse, skirt and fur coat. The genius part of this plan being that no one would suspect him as a thief, as when was the last time you ever heard of a burglar wearing high heels? And then, at a much later date, he'd break back into that same building wearing a more practical attire of jeans, t-shirt and trainers. Being skilled, but broke, and with a greater need for designer clothes, David progressed to armed robbery, later holding up an armoured car dressed in a leather skirt, six-inch heels and fishnet tights. And although... In July 1982, he would steal 24 handguns and over 1,000 rounds of ammunition from Thomas Blandon's sons, a gun dealer on New Road in Covent Garden. He didn't need the guns, and he didn't want the guns. And although some he sold, he kept most, believing they belonged to him. In February 1982, having ventured into the lucrative market of video piracy, David used his burglary skills to break into colour film services, a film laboratory and private cinema at 22 Portman Close, at the back of Oxford Street, to assess which video recorders and master copies of the latest Hollywood blockbusters he would eventually steal. When disturbed by Albert Seaman, who was working the night shift, and asked what he was doing there, instead of fleeing, with a supreme self-confidence, dressed in a blonde wig, a mink coat, tapered trousers, Cuban-heeled shoes, and carrying a clutch bag, David simply replied in his manly voice, It's okay, mate. I'm security. Then flashed a fake ID badge and casually walked out. Testing the doors as he left. So implausible was this story that even though Albert reported it to his superiors and eventually the police, no further action was taken. On Thursday, the 5th of August 1982, at a little before midnight, David returned to colour film services at 22 Portman Close. Dressed in dark jeans, boots, a black leather jacket, a lot of eyeliner, well, this was the 1980s, and picked the lock using a key he'd fashioned just a few months earlier out of a screwdriver. Once again, having been spotted by a security guard, David bluffed his way out. But not believing the story of a man dressed entirely in black... The security guard called the police. Moments later, PC Nick Carr and PC Jerry Fretter entered the premises. Unfazed by their arrival, David was polite but officious, adopting the believable persona of an anxious employee with a tight deadline to keep. And when asked who he was, he handed over an ID card in the name of David Domain, a card that he had stolen just a few days before. His story was good and the ID checked out. But when the dubious PCs requested that David empty his pockets, he refused and tried to flee. With P.C. Fretter having rugby-tackled the dark-dressed suspect to the floor and holding him in a tight headlock as P.C. Carr went for his handcuffs, David's hatred towards the boys in blue came bubbling up once again. And seeing red, from his jacket pocket he pulled a Colt Mustang semi-automatic pistol and fired three 38 caliber bullets hitting P.C. Carr in the leg and severing a vital artery. P.C. Nick Carr was rushed to hospital, where although he lost six pints of blood, he survived, made a full recovery, and both he and P.C. Fretter were later awarded a police commendation for bravery. But having fled the dark-lit building, leaving the police with a limited description of their assailant, who was using a stolen ID, David Martin should have been impossible to trace. But with numerous robberies over the last few months, having been committed by a skilled burglar and locksmith, with long blonde hair, a slim feminine body, heavy use of makeup, and a distinctive Roman nose who'd often carried a black thirty eight caliber Colt Mustang, so small that it easily fits inside a lady's clutch bag. Police knew his face. They knew his M.O. Now, they just needed a name. In need of some quick cash, after the bungled burglary at the film laboratory... David attempted to sell the firearms he'd stolen from the Covent Garden gun dealer to another dealer in Ladbroke Grove. Being suspicious, the dealer discreetly notified the police and handed them his contact details that David had left. Except this time, David didn't use a fake ID or a stolen identity. This time, he used his real name and also supplied the gun dealer with his home address of Flat 16, 1 Crawford Place, Marleybone. Knowing he was armed and dangerous, Detective Constable Finch and Detective Constable Guy Van D. of the Metropolitan Police kept surveillance on David's Crawford Place flat for several weeks, keeping their distance, but never once seeing him only his dark-haired girlfriend, Sue Stevens, and a slim, blonde-haired lady who would accompany her to whole food shops and yoga practice, this lady of which had large feet, an Adam's apple, and a distinctive Roman nose. Having made a positive idea of their suspect, on Wednesday, the 15th of September 1982, just before 10 pm, as David pulled up outside his flat in a stolen VW Golf, wearing a wide brimmed hat, a leather skirt and jacket, and black stockings, he entered number one Crawford Place, not knowing that the police were lying in wait. But being edgy, angry, and paranoid, after six weeks on the run, the second he exited the seventh-floor lift, Detective Constables Finch and Van Dee pounced, but David had already drawn his black 38 caliber Colt Mustang from his handbag. Fearing for their lives, their guns not drawn, Finch wrestled David to the floor, knocking the firearm free of his hands. And as he flipped David over to hank off his disarmed assailant, with his free hand, David reached between his legs and pulled from his stocking top a small but deadly Smith & Wesson 22 caliber pistol. And in a truly terrifying moment in which his life must have flashed before his eyes, as a volatile man with wild hair, black eyeliner and blood-red lipstick smeared across his face, the unstable David screamed, I will blow you away! As he pointed the loaded gun directly into Finch's face. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: To find out if it's right for you.
1: Desperate to protect his partner from a dangerous man with a death wish, Detective Constable Guy Van Dee shot David Martin in the neck, disabling his suspect and cuffing the bleeding suspect. All the while, with David frothing like a rabid dog, screaming, I could have killed the lot of you. I could have had you all. Why don't you just finish me off? Goading them to end his life, there and then. Just like PC Carr, the police constable who he had shot, although he'd lost a lot of blood, David survived, had the bullet removed from his neck under armed guard at Charing Cross Hospital, and was later sent to Brixton Prison, where he awaited his trial. And although David was arrested and imprisoned, and both officers received a police commendation for their bravery, Detective Constable Finch would never forget David Martin for bringing him so close to death, and neither would he forgive him. And although the due process of law had to be carried out, bad blood remained between them. On Christmas Eve 1982, 36-year-old David Ralph Martin was charged at the Marlborough Street Magistrates Court on 12 counts including armed robbery, theft, fraud and the attempted murder of P.C. Nick Carr, where he pleaded not guilty to all charges. Of course, in any normal story, this would be the end. But it wasn't, as this was just the beginning. After the initial hearing, David was returned to his cells in the bowels of the Marlborough Street Police Station. A standard single cell measuring just six feet wide by six feet deep. Surrounded by four cold grey walls of solid brick. A small high window covered in thick iron bars. With a basic bed, a simple toilet, and the only way in or out being through an 8-inch thick steel door, which was locked. And it's here that the prisoner would sit and wait, as the endless hours and minutes ticked by, trapped in a drab grey cell. But then again, being so driven, bright, and easily distracted, with people to see, things to do, and an all-consuming contempt for the law, David was never a very patient man. And so, by 4pm that afternoon, when the police opened his cell door to transfer him back to prison, David was gone. Nicknamed by his former police captors as Houdini, after the infamous magician and escapologist Harry Houdini, David wasn't just a genius at breaking into buildings, he was just as skilled at breaking out. Claiming to his friends, there's no prison which can hold me, David had first escaped from Borstal in 1968 by picking a lock. In 1972, he twice escaped from a prison van on his way to court. First, through the skylight, and second, by picking the lock and springing all of his cellmates' doors open too. In 1973, David and 20 other prisoners rammed the prison gates having hijacked a rubbish truck, but was caught hailing a cab on Brixton Hill. In 1974, he almost escaped from Parkhurst Maximum Security Prison, having handcrafted a set of seven keys to the prison doors. And in 1975, at HMP Gartry, another maximum security prison, having cut away the metal grill in his window and bypassed the prison's alarm system, he almost escaped, but was caught having injured his leg. But this time, in his cell at the Marlborough Street Police Station, David didn't have the luxury of time so he made do with what he had, which was an encyclopedic knowledge of locks, a photographic memory, and a lock pick hidden in his thick blonde hair for emergencies. And having viewed the shape of the key in the warder's hand for literally a split second, David fashioned the pick to match the barrel of the lock, inserted the makeshift key, turned it, and barely a minute later, the cell door was open. Scurrying along the prison corridor, David darted up to the top floor, popped open a skylight, climbed onto the prison roof, jumped onto the Palladium Theatre, waltzed into the theatre's foyer, mingled with the patrons, exited the front doors, and disappeared into the throng of Christmas shoppers on Oxford Street by the time his warders had opened his prison cell, David was long gone. David had literally vanished into thin air. And although the police kept surveillance on his usual haunts, his Crawford Place flat, his parents' home, his favourite bars, yoga clubs and whole food shops, David had completely disappeared but everyone has their weaknesses and David's was a woman. Described by David as the only woman I will ever love, Sue Stevens was a 26-year-old glamour model who David was so besotted with that the police knew he'd break cover to contact his girlfriend. On the evening of Friday the 14th of January, 1983, Having received a tip-off that David and Sue were due to meet to hand over a stash of cash, stolen IDs and guns that David had stored in a safe deposit box in Selfridges, Detective Constable Peter Finch spotted a bright yellow Mini pull up outside Sue's flat. As the petite, dark-haired figure of Sue got into the back seat of the cramped little car, although Finch didn't recognise the driver, Lester Purdy, who was a friend of Sue's, the man in the passenger seat seemed very familiar, with his dark leather jacket, his slim frame, his long blonde hair, and a very distinctive nose. DC Finch radioed in a possible sighting of David Martin, and with two teams of armed police officers keeping a safe distance until a positive ID could be made, they followed the Yellow Mini, all the while with D.C. Finch desperate to put an end to David Martin's criminal career, once and for all. As the rush hour traffic around Earl's Court became hopelessly congested, and the Yellow Mini came to a dead stop on Pembroke Road, D.C. Finch, as the only officer on the team who had physically seen David Martin in the flesh, was sent forward to make a positive ID. Fearing for his life, and knowing that David was volatile, dangerous, and heavily armed, not wanting to make the same mistake twice, as he ran along the pavement towards the bright yellow Mini, this time, Finch's gun was drawn. Sidling up to the Mini, armed with a standard police-issue Glock 17, DC Finch glanced in through the darkness of the passenger's side window and saw the familiar features of David Martin, a flash of fear in his eyes at seeing the armed officer. And as the blonde-haired passenger reached his hand around into the back seat, in a split-second decision between life and death, DC Finch opened fire. Providing tactical backup for his partner, Detective Constable John Jardine fired five shots through the Mini's rear window. Missing Sue Stevens who cowered in the back seat and hitting the passenger as a volley of shots ripped through him from different angles. Fearing for his life, the car's driver, Lester Purdy, scrambled from the blood-soaked Mini and as his wounded friend attempted to flee through the driver's side door, D.C. Jardine shot the injured man two more times as he slumped on the driver's seat. With his heart racing and his blood pumping, as Finch reached the driver's side door, firing once more, he realised that he was out of ammunition. He dragged the bloodied passenger from the Mini and pistol-whipped him into unconsciousness. David Martin's criminal career had finally come to an end. No longer being a danger to anyone, having handcuffed the unconscious passenger, they rolled him over to formally arrest him. But as his blonde hair, which was matted with blood, was moved away from his face, D.C. Finch realised that he had made a deadly mistake, as the man he had shot was not David Martin. The Mini's passenger was Stephen Wardolph, a 26-year-old freelance film editor, who was a friend of Sue's who had never met David Martin and yet, tragically, they looked remarkably similar. The police had shot an injured man, pistol-whipping him, handcuffing him, shooting him five times, hitting him in the arm, the stomach and the head, and leaving him bleeding on the pavement. Although riddled with bullets, having gone into cardiac arrest and lost a lot of blood, Stephen Wardorf remained in intensive care at St. Stephen's Hospital in Fulham for many weeks, and went on to make a steady recovery. He received a full apology from the Metropolitan Police, was awarded £120,000 compensation, which is roughly £300,000 today, and Detective Constables Finch and Jardine were charged at the Old Bailey for the attempted murder of Stephen Wardorf. Of course, in any normal story, this would be the end, but it isn't. On the 19th of October, 1983, even though the ambush of the Yellow Mini was conducted in busy traffic, posing a serious threat to public safety, openly flouting the strict rules which had governed the police's use of firearms, and an innocent man was severely injured... Detective Constables John Jardine and Peter Finch were found not guilty of all charges and acquitted of the attempted murder of Stephen Waldorf. And even though both men were relieved of firearm duties, they remained on the force. And yet, throughout, the police's hunt to find David Martin continued unabated. Still traumatised and shocked, After the bloody attack on the yellow Mini, and terrified that her association with David Martin had risked her life and almost killed her friend, Sue Stevens agreed to have the Met Police use her as bait to lure David out of hiding. Having covertly agreed to meet in a place that David described as in the last place that we met, on Thursday, the 28th of January 1983, at 8pm, a beige stolen Ford Sierra pulled up on Heath Street in Hampstead, North London. Inside sat a furtive looking man in his mid 30s, wearing blue jeans, a white t shirt, and a black leather jacket, with short, dark, recently dyed hair and a distinctive Roman nose. And although he wore no makeup, no skirts, and no heels, there was no denying that this time, this was David Martin. As David nervously sidled up to the milk churn, a small family run restaurant where he'd agreed to meet his beloved Sue, his instincts told him that something wasn't right. And with no sign of Sue in the half full restaurant, and too many single men aimlessly milling about on the street, sensing that this was a setup. David fled on foot, with the police in hot pursuit. Having hidden in the Nag's Head pub, armed officers flooded the street, blocking David's access to his stolen getaway car. And seeing no other way out, he sprinted into Hampstead Underground Station. Leaping over the barriers, bouncing down the spiral staircase, onto the northbound northern line platform, where he ran the full length of the stationary tube train, burst through the driver's cab, out onto the tracks, and narrowly avoiding the power line, which carries a deadly charge of 25,000 volts, he vanished into the inky blackness of the tunnel. Once again, David Martin, the transgender Houdini, had vanished into thin air. But having lost him before, there was no way that the police were going to lose him this time. Having switched off the deadly current, armed officers swarmed the northern line tunnels in both directions, entering from both Golders Green, one stop to the north, and Belsize Park, one stop to the south. At 8.43pm, on the southbound northern line of Belsize Park, having double-backed on himself using a service door to fool his pursuers, hearing footsteps in the tunnel, the officers' torches illuminated the dusty, dirty and choking silhouette of David Martin, who with armed officers on all sides was out of breath, And out of options and gave up without a fight. Taking no chances with the volatile, violent and heavily armed man, the officers searched David in the tunnel and although he didn't have a gun, he was packing two knives and a can of ammonia spray. But before this infamous Houdini, who had bragged, there's no prison which can hold me, was put into his prison cell The police, very wisely, subjected David to a very thorough body cavity search, upon which they discovered several lockpicks, a razor blade in his hair and stuck to the roof of his mouth. Using a piece of chewing gum, they found a tiny penknife filed in the shape of a lock, to which David gave the officers a wry smile and joked, Well, you can't blame me for trying. David Ralph Martin was tried in Court 2 of the Old Bailey on the 24th of September 1983, and he was charged with 15 offences, including robbery, fraud, resisting arrest, and the attempted murder of PC Nick Carr. And although there was a wealth of evidence against him, with his customary brand of contempt for the law, he pleaded not guilty to all charges. After a 14-day trial, on the 11th of October 1983, David Martin was found guilty of all charges. And even though he was sentenced to 29 years in Parkhurst Maximum Security Prison, where he'd already escaped before, he vowed there and then that he would escape again. Prison life was no great shakes for David, having spent much of his adult life behind bars and as a cross-dressing bisexual who filled the gap for horny heterosexual inmates. And having been sentenced at the same time as him, David rekindled his relationship with the infamous British serial killer Dennis Nielsen. But life inside was not the same and it never would be again. Described by David as the only woman I would ever love. Sue Stevens, his 26-year-old girlfriend, whose life had been risked in the bungled attack on the yellow mini, had broken up with him, refusing to write, visit, or to see him ever again. Left in a fragile, vulnerable, and emotional state, with his drive gone, his ambition quashed, and his heart broken, with no reason to escape, or even live. On the 13th of March 1983, at 6pm, prison officers found David hanging in his cell from a ventilation grill, having used a bootlace as a noose. David Ralph Martin, the infamous burglar, robber, trickster and criminal escapologist, made his final escape from Parkhurst Maximum Security Prison. But this time, he didn't ram the gates, burst through the skylight, or pick the door's lock. Instead, the heartbroken man exited his cell, this world and the life he despised so much, lying face up in a simple pine box. And in the final act of indignity to this transgender Houdini, he was dressed as a man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. And if you fancy chatting to myself or any other fellow listeners, seeing unseen photos and discussing any of the cases, I've set up a discussion group on Facebook, simply called Murder Mile True Crime Podcast Discussion Group. And there's a link here in the show notes. Or you can join us on Facebook, Twitter and Pinterest. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Steiner, John Books of Cult with no name. Next week's episode is the unsolved murder of Nora Upchurch. Thank you. Sleep well.